Good morning, everyone. I hear some Arctic buzz in this room. Uh, good morning, my name is Heather Conley. I'm Senior Vice President uh, for Europe, Eurasia, and the Arctic here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We are absolutely delighted that you're joining here with us this morning to talk about uh, an important area of the Arctic, the role of science. CSIS is absolutely privileged and pleased to be partnering for this particular seminar with the Senate Arctic Caucus, co-led by Senator Angus King of Maine and Senator Lisa Murkowski of, of Alaska. And uh, we are thrilled that they have uh, been able to find some moments in their very busy schedule to open up this conversation. It was in March of this year that the Senate Arctic Caucus was launched. Uh, I think, Senator Murkowski, you mentioned that it's time that we embrace our inner Arctic self, so we're going to embrace our inner Arctic self for the next several hours. The Arctic Caucus is looking at a whole range of issues, defense, energy, environment, uh, de economic development, focusing on infrastructure development in the Arctic, mapping, weather forecasting, charting, all of the full range of issues, many of these issues that we here at CSIS are also very interested uh, in pursuing. So this is a great partnership and we are thrilled to really talk about this one subject that touches on that full range of areas. It is the role of science. How do we understand the transformation that we're seeing in the Arctic? How can we make wise decisions based on good science? So we have an extraordinary uh, number of, of, of colleagues that are going to help us understand the vital role of science from understanding what the science is telling us today to actually talking with some of the practitioners within the US government and in the academic setting to understand how the role of science is evolving. So first, uh, it is my great privilege to welcome Senator Murkowski to the podium. She'll give some opening remarks, then turn to Senator King for his remarks, and then we will continue our conversation with our first panel. But again, let me welcome Senator Murkowski, Chairman of the Senate Energy and National Resources Committee. She also serves on the Senate Appropriations Committee and as the Chairman of the Interior and Environment Subcommittee, clearly critical, critical committees to the Arctic. And then, of course, Senator King uh, has uh, been a longstanding governor of Maine and uh, has now uh, joined uh, the Senate and offering his leadership. Many times we don't remember the eastern portion of the Arctic, Canada, Iceland, Denmark. Maine has a vital role to play on the other side of the Arctic. So uh, these two, we call them our co-pilots on the Senate Arctic Caucus, provide both the West and the Eastern perspective for the American Arctic, North American Arctic. So with that, please join me in welcoming Senator Murkowski. Thank you, Heather, and good morning to you all. It is, it's good to be back here at CSIS. Uh, it's good to always be talking about the Arctic. It's good to see many friends that we have seen at prior Arctic discussions, but even better, it's better to see people that we haven't seen as we have discussed the Arctic in the past. I think those of us that have been engaged in this for some period of time, as much as we like to spend time with one another, we really need to be getting outside of our comfort zone, and we're finally getting there. 
we're finally getting there. We had an interesting uh, August with the Glacier Conference that Secretary Kerry hosted in, in Anchorage, Alaska, inviting um, ministers from the other Arctic nations. I'm really a, an amazing gathering of, of international, uh, not only experts, but people that were focused on issues of the Arctic. And then, of course, there was President Obama's somewhat unprecedented visit. Uh, Alaska does attract presidents and, and presidential wannabes, but unfortunately, most of the time, we get them just long enough for them to refuel their aircraft, and then they're on their way, typically, to Asia or elsewhere. So to have a president come and stay with us for close to three days, and even more, to have a president come to Alaska and get outside of Anchorage was, was really, uh, again, somewhat uh, un unprecedented. In fact, it was totally unprecedented. We'd never had a president visit the Arctic before, and he was uh, up in Kotzebue, so he was above the Arctic Circle. Just a little bit, but he was above the Arctic Circle. And so it gave us an opportunity as that state that allows the United States to be recognized as an Arctic nation. Uh, it, it kind of centered us for a period uh, of time in terms of our inner Arctic self. And so uh, it, was, it was good to invite the rest of the world to the US Arctic for, for a view for several days. So we feel like we're, we're getting ourselves on the map, if you will, when we come to the US Arctic. The, the introduction here this morning with uh, myself and, and Senator King as the co-chairs of the Arctic uh, Caucus in the United States Senate, I think is important. It's significant because as, as two colleagues, again, from the east, from the west, I say that where the, the Arctic bookends here, what we are attempting to do within the Congress is, is broaden that view, broaden that understanding amongst colleagues as to why the Arctic is important. So we're growing our numbers, not at the rate that I would like or, or I think that Senator King would like, but when you appreciate that we have colleagues on our Arctic caucus that hail from Arizona, from Louisiana, from Connecticut, not states that one would typically think as Arctic. I think we're making a little bit of, of headway in that, and so that is, uh, that is good. I want to compliment CSIS for compiling a, a very knowledgeable uh, group to discuss not just Arctic issues, but really the, the, the broader picture uh, on how the Arctic intersects uh, with that. I'm, I'm pleased that we have friends from Alaska that are part of the panel, first panel and second panel, and know that we, they will be sharing um, good information with you this morning, and I thank them for making the long trek back here. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. I, I have pressed my staff to not think of the Arctic in terms of your specific issue area. We have to view the Arctic in a holistic manner. So if you're the, if you're the national security guy, you can't be thinking about the Arctic just 
from the perspective of national security. Or if you're the fisheries guy, you can't view it in terms of just the fisheries. Or if you're the one that handles the uh, Alaska Native Indigenous Peoples portfolio, you cannot think about it just in that way. It must be done in a holistic manner. We can't look at it from a sector-specific or single-issue focus. And whether it's research activities, economic development, investment in infrastructure, environmental stewardship, it's all interlinked, it's all interconnected. And even more so when you look at the communities in America's Arctic, what happens in one part of the community impacts the entire community. And in that same vein then, I think it's important that we recognize that what happens in one activity can be kind of cross-fertilized, if you will, to other areas and activities. The research, and that's what we're focusing on here this morning, that is conducted in the Arctic is not just useful from an academic or a policy standpoint. It can also be a huge educational driver for these communities. And then as these educational drivers move forward, that helps drive the local economies as well. And I'm, I want to highlight just one specific area and kind of call out Dr. Cahill in front here. But when we can get our children interested in what is happening on the ground, how their surroundings and changes to their surroundings, understanding how that impacts them, how technology can be utilized, gain a level of excitement and enthusiasm. That's our future, really, with the Arctic. And, and again, I don't want to set expectations too high here for the panel this morning, but uh, Dr. Kathy Cahill, who is uh, with the University of Alaska Fairbanks and, and really leading uh, on the area of, of UAS, of drones. Um, what, what she found is that when young people, when students are engaged, basically when they are allowed to fly the drones or be involved with the activities, the interest that is then generated, the impact that it has on these communities is, is really profound. And I'm hopeful that she will share a little bit of that when she speaks in the panel this morning. We have to remember that in our, our villagers, villages, not everyone who lives there is going to have an academic PhD. Most will not. But what they do have is a master's in Arctic living. And that in and of itself can be as significant as anything. That hunter or that, uh, that school kid, they can be the building block of our scientific research. And before the data can be collected and analyzed, before research can be formulated and peer reviewed, somebody actually has to witness it. They've got to see it and then know to report what is happening. Back in 2009, the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium got some funding to do climate health monitoring. And their program morphed into the Local Environmental Observers Network. They call it LEO, L-E-O. LEO takes in reports of, of what would um, be considered unusual events or activities, and it's done by, by the folks on the ground, whether it's the, the tribal uh, folks, residents in the remote villages, and it connects these observations with the expert consultants to try to explain, okay, so what is going on out here? 
Since 2012, the LEO network has collected more than 350 observations. It's led to advisories on the safety of, of eating certain fish or certain game, as well as action by NOAA to investigate uh, something that was killing uh, ice seals. Now, the Arctic Council, under our chairmanship here in the United States, is looking to expand that system and create what we're calling the Circumpolar Local Environmental Organization, CLEO. And uh, again, to do more of the same, to build on the human observations that we have, to utilize technological enhancements to allow for immediate reporting from the field with, with precise uh, GPS coordinates, really using, using your smartphone, using an app that is sitting right there. So as we're looking at, at research activity that's ongoing and planned within the Arctic, I would encourage you to be thinking about how do we interact with the other aspects of life in the Arctic and how engagement with those who actually live and work and raise their families in the Arctic is, is such a win-win. Again, utilize, utilize those who have this master's in Arctic living. Now, I'm going to, to just make a shameless plug here, if I may. Uh, I had an opportunity yesterday afternoon to meet with uh, Larry Hinsman, who is on your first panel here. Uh, Dr. Hinsman is with the University of Alaska Fairbanks, and we were talking about the HARP facility in Alaska, the high-frequency uh, Oriole Research uh, Program. I just want to say, uh, up and running and open for business. And when you think about, again, research opportunities in the north, you can think about our institutions, you can think about the, the assets that are there, certainly that HARP is, and you should certainly remember the people uh, who, again, might not consider themselves scientists and researchers, but are helping us build that understanding every day. One other point I want to leave you with, and uh, this relates to the Arctic Council. So far, the Arctic Council has reached now two binding agreements, one on search and, and rescue coordination, and the other on oil spill uh, preparedness and response. There is a third agreement that is in the works, and I would like all of you to kind of keep an eye on this, if you will, because I do think it has or promises to have a pretty direct impact on scientific research within the Arctic. And this is the Scientific Cooperation Task Force. They're working towards an agreement on improved scientific cooperation among the eight Arctic states. They're scheduled to complete their work during uh, the United States chairmanship. And this is why it's so important. If, if you want to gather, say for instance, a, a soil sample um, from the seafloor for, for scientific research, you have to have permission from the nation that controls the air, that particular area of the Arctic. So of course, we're seeing right now <coughs> nations submitting their extended continental shelf claims under the Law of the Sea Convention. And, and effectively, what you're seeing is the amount of the international space in the Arctic is shrinking as you're seeing those submitting their claims. With Russia's claim to 45% of the Arctic region and their history of signing research agreements only to later deny access, potentially, potentially, 
one half of the Arctic could be put off limits to scientific research activity depending on you know, where the, the Russian agencies may or may not uh, go. So I think one of the things that we want to encourage is, is this continued cooperation and ensuring that scientific cooperation, uh, the task force itself, is successful in its mission for a binding agreement. And it's a binding agreement that keeps open the Arctic to science uh, this needs to be a priority within the science community and those who value science in our policy decisions. So I would encourage CSIS, I would encourage the panelists that you will hear this morning and, and all those of you who clearly have an interest in this to, to encourage us within the United States um, as we move forward with our chairmanship. Let's keep this out there as a priority. Let's make certain that this is something that we see accomplished during our tenure as, as chair of the US, uh, of, the, of the Arctic Council. With that, uh, it is a pleasure this morning to, to be here uh, with the co-chair of the Senate Arctic Caucus, Senator Angus King, uh, a gentleman that I have high, high regard for, and one who has uh, engaged in the Arctic issues with a great level of, of enthusiasm. And I so appreciate that through his leadership, we have, we've expanded the view from within this country about where our Arctic lies. That in this country, as big as we are, we have two ends that touch, uh, touch into the Arctic areas. And to have Senator King's leadership not only on the issues that we're facing as we uh, uh, take up the Arctic Council chairmanship, but just as a, as a general matter, is, is great comfort. So I'm pleased he's here with me, and I would ask that you join me in a warm welcome to Senator Angus King. I have to tell you a, uh, a moment engraved in my memory it was about a year and a half ago. We were entering the Senate chamber to take a vote on something, and I was following Lisa Murkowski, and I said, Lisa, I want to be the Arctic senator. And without missing a beat, she said, no, you can be the assistant Arctic senator. <laughs> uh, it was very clear where the, uh, where the lines were drawn. Uh, I want to uh, uh, thank you for setting this up, thank CSIS, and uh, for the focus on science. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Uh, quite often, people in our business, and I know Lisa will identify with this, are called upon to speak to groups where every single member of the audience knows more about the subject than we do. I mean, it happens a lot, and it's happening today. Uh, so I'm going to turn around the, the premise, and instead of telling you things, I'm going to ask you things and uh, suggest my, my remarks are 10 things we need you to tell us, to help us with in terms of Arctic policy. What do we need from the scientific and geopolitical uh, uh, analytic community in order to help us uh, make better policy. Some, as you will see, are kind of big questions, and some are, are rather specific. So um, 
let's, uh, and, and they're in no particular order. Uh, but number one, we need more data on the scientific implications of uh, global climate change on ocean currents. I think that is one of the largest potential effects of uh, particularly the potential melting of the Greenland ice sheet. If we screw up the Gulf Stream, it fundamentally changes uh, not only geopolitics, but essentially makes Scandinavia and, and uh, the British Isles uninhabitable. Uh, and, and that is a huge potential impact. I know there's been work done on it, but I think from a policy point of view, that's something we really need more work on and a better understanding of what happens if a, if a lot of fresh water suddenly flows into the North Atlantic and what that does to the thermal incline, uh, thermal, thermoclines and, uh, and, and ocean currents. I don't think we fully appreciate, at least the lay community doesn't fully appreciate the role that currents, uh, ocean currents like the Gulf Stream have on our climate. So that's number one. We need more research and data on potential impacts of climate change on ocean currents because that could be much more dramatic in its actual impact than a three or four degree average temperature change in, in North Carolina or, or uh, even in Maine. So that, that's number one. And by the way, a parenthetical here that you all have to be thinking about is how do we do more with less? The government, the, 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 the people of America are not going to wake up sometime in the next couple of weeks and say, we want to pay more taxes. And the demands on government resources and research or defense or Head Start or, or opiate abuse or whatever are going to continue to grow. So the scientific community has to be very creative about working cooperatively. I'm a bear on cooperation. Working cooperatively, sharing data, uh, sharing information, and every part, a sort of subset of this whole uh, process has to be uh, not business as usual, but how do we get more data, work with the Navy, for example, that have the submarines up there. Let's talk to the Navy about mapping the bottom and, and using those resources, uh, but we have to be more uh, creative. Uh, number two, more data on permafrost. Uh, and what is the potential? As you all probably know, many of you, the permafrost is a kind of climate bomb that's waiting to go off in terms of the amount of carbon that's sequestered uh, in, in the ground. That's one of the few times in this city you'll ever hear the word sequester used in a positive sense. <laughs> um, but I, I've been shocked to read the, the amount of methane and, and, and carbon CO2 that is in the permafrost and that could be the most powerful uh, feedback loop of all time. Uh, and the, the amount, it dwarfs, for example, what we're producing in our power plants and, and automobiles. So we need some serious research on A, how much is there, B, what's going to trigger the release, C, how soon will it happen, and how, what will the time frame be over which it is released. That's, that's number two. Uh, number three, you have to help us politicians make the case for the, uh, for the uh, give us the data and the background, both scientific and geopolitical, for the ratification of the Law of the Sea Treaty. We are in a ridiculous situation where other countries are making claims on the, on the shelf under the Law of the Sea Treaty, and we're not a signatory, and therefore can't make a claim. 
so to the extent those of you who are working in the more political side, uh, help us with that. I, I, need to, I need to be able to make the case to my colleagues that this is an important thing that the Congress uh, ought to be doing uh, in order to protect our interests. It's in our national interest uh, in order to, to uh, uh, participate in the law of the sea process. That's, that's number three. Number four, do we really need icebreakers? And how many and why and how significant is the icebreaker gap? I believe we need them, but you have to help us make that, make that case. Icebreakers are about a billion dollars a copy. And you know, you've heard all the numbers. I, I've, heard, I've never heard so many variations, but the Russians have somewhere between 17 and 40, and we have somewhere between one and three. I mean, that's the basic ratio. And to me, the icebreakers are the highways of the Arctic. They're basic infrastructure. You can't, you know, you, you can't get from Kansas City to Las Vegas without a highway. You can't get across the Arctic without an icebreaker. And we are woefully inadequate. We have two heavy icebreakers, one medium, and one of the heavy ones, the Polar Star, is essentially uh, 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 just this side of scrap uh, we're using parts from, uh, the, the other, the major icebreaker has to rotate between Antarctica and, and, uh, and the Arctic. That's ridiculous. And by the way, I, I should have mentioned, why does Maine care? If you go through the northern route with a ship from Asia, guess where the closest ports on the East Coast are? The state of Maine. And that's a very important part of potential for our state. And that's one of the reasons that I'm interested in, in this subject, other than my uh, native uh, curiosity. So we do need, in order to allocate the funds to build the icebreaker, and I was delighted the president made a, a move in this, in this direction. Uh, by the way, interesting uh, effect of climate change, there's this big mountain in Alaska there's a big plaque on the side that says McKinley. But because of the melting of the ice and the glaciers coming down, they've noticed there's now a new plaque that says Denali. I mean, you know, it, it changed. Um, but we need data, and, 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 and we need to, you, the scientific and geopolitical community, to help us make the case for more icebreakers, uh, because they are expensive. Uh, but we have to do that. Uh, number five, see, the nice part of this talk is you now know exactly where we are. We're almost halfway through. Uh, number five, what are the special risks of Arctic drilling? What are, we need science on are there, what's the difference between the Gulf of Mexico and the Arctic Ocean in terms of the risks and benefits of, of drilling? What do we need to, to build up in terms of infrastructure in order to be sure that the drilling takes place safely? What would be the consequences in the Arctic of a major spill uh, as opposed to the Gulf of Mexico? And by the way, one of my favorite lines, uh, we talk about the deep water horizon spill, people talk about the deep water. Bill Maher said calling that a spill is like calling World War II a tiff. You know, uh, it, was, uh, it was not a spill, it was a gusher. Uh, and we need to understand what would happen in the Arctic if something like that happened. And we also need information from you about what should the infrastructure be. In the Gulf, there's all kinds of responders. In Portland, Maine, we have a ship that's ready to deal with oil spills because we have a lot of oil that comes in and out of the port of Portland. 
what do we need in the Arctic in, way, in the way of, of preventive and response infrastructure? So that's something that you, you folks can, can help us with. What, what, are the, uh, what, are the, what are the needs for infrastructure? What are the special risks? And how do we uh, uh, cope with them in order to also realize the, the energy benefits that may be available? Uh, number six, it's a related to that, how do we persuade the Russians to be careful? This is a, a political uh, foreign policy issue, but it, it behooves us a little if we're exceedingly careful and build up the infrastructure to, to deal with the risks of drilling and the other guys are right across the way, uh, you know, uh, the devil take the hindmost because if there's a blowout or a spill, <laughs> It's going to affect the entire region, not just their part. So how do we develop some kind of cooperative relationship that uh, sharing of technology, sharing of, of experience uh, that we've had in our offshore drilling that will uh, encourage and support them in uh, also being careful and trying to prevent this uh, kind of problem. Um, number seven. Uh, this is sort of a, a, a funny one. Do your own gap analysis. I'm doing sort of a gap analysis based upon very little knowledge. You should do it. You, sh you should have a, a, a group that says, uh, what are we missing? What do we think we're missing? What is the research that needs to be done? You know better than, than I, but what is the research that needs to be done that isn't available? Uh, and, and I'm a great believer in, in, the, in the approach of gap analysis. What's missing? Uh, and I would uh, urge that there be a subgroup that to set up specifically to say what are the eight things or 10 things or 20 things that we need to do in order to more fully uh, understand what's going on in the Arctic from a scientific uh, point of view. Um, number eight, um, give us some data on the timing of what's going on in the Arctic in terms of climate change. Um, most people, the general public, I think, thinks of climate change as incremental, slow, sort of geologic time. Uh, you know, this will happen, but it'll be a thousand years from now, or 500 years from now, or even 100 years from now. Most of us, uh, you know, the famous statesman said, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, but these, what is the timing of these changes? Paul Majewski, Paul, are you here? Where, where are you, Paul? Paul from uh, University of Maine uh, Climate uh, uh, Change Lab uh, educated me several years ago about the fact that climate change in the past has not occurred over slow geologic time, but has occurred abruptly. Abruptly, within a decade, a switch is turned, something happens, whether it's Greenland ice sheet into the water or uh, just enough of a, of a temperature change so that in the winter or in the summer the ice doesn't melt. Climate change can occur abruptly, so we need to understand, I think that's an important area of research is, what's the time frame that we're talking about? What are the elements of the time frame uh, that we're talking about uh, in order to, to understand uh, what we're what we're dealing with here in terms of, of risk. Uh, number nine, uh, red team your own data. Uh, red team is a term I've learned in the intelligence community and in the armed services where you take a group of people 
and sick them on yourselves. You know, a, a red team, for example, would be somebody who tried to hack the Office of Personnel Management, not that anyone could ever do that. Uh, but in other words, have our own people try to, to break the code to get in or something like that. You need to red team your own data and analysis to ensure that it's right. Because when you give it to people like Lisa and I, we're going to run with it. And it better be right. So you need to, to constantly, and I know this is the scientific method and peer review, and maybe peer review is a kind of red teaming, but I urge you to think about putting together a group of scientists whose job it is to poke and prod and test the data of, uh, of, the, uh, uh, of your colleagues. Finally, my wife says I say finally too much. It gets people's hopes up. Uh, but finally, number 10. Work on how to visually present your data in a compelling way. If you've never heard of Edward Tufte, look him up. Google Edward Tufte, T-U-F-T-E, the visual presentation of numerical data. And Google Napoleon's, the, the graph of Napoleon's uh, march to Moscow and back, probably the greatest visual representation of numerical data in, in history. It avails us little if people can't understand what you're talking about. And uh, I'll give you one I just saw yesterday. The White House has just published a kind of scorecard for colleges. And I just looked at it last night. It's fascinating and very well presented. It has three bar graphs, average cost, graduation rate, and average income five years, I think it's five years after graduation, with a line on each bar graph of what the national average is. And you can look at it instantly and compare you know, uh, the Maine Maritime Academy, which I think has one of the highest returns on investment of any college in the country, with other colleges where you pay more and get less. I mean, it's a, it's a really good visual presentation of the data, much better than just a, a spreadsheet or a graph or something like that. So uh, Google uh, Tufty and, and help us give us the data, but give it to us in ways that can be uh, compelling and, and influential. By the way, I. I I don't know about you, but I think it's really cool to have been born during, at the time of, the invention of a new verb to Google. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being able to tell your grandchildren, I was there when they invented run? <laughs> you know? Well, it's the same thing. But anyway, give us the data in ways that it's useful and compelling and, and, and and can cut through some of the clutter and make it uh, so that it, it can be used in order to help us make policy. So that's my list. I'm sure if you thought about it for a half hour, you could come up with 10 more. But uh, what you're doing, I love the title, the vital role of science, the critical role of science, the overwhelmingly important role of science. This is all about science. And you've got to give us that science in order for us to have the basis for making good policy. If we don't have good science, we can't make good policy. So what you're doing is really important. I commend the work that you're doing and only regret that uh, Lisa and I can't stay here for the day, but we have to go up and, and vote. Uh, it's Groundhog Day in the Senate. We have to vote on the Iran Treaty again, I think, which is 
uh, keeps going. But uh, 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 I commend you for what you're doing. I thank you for what you're doing and uh, am delighted to be working with you and look forward to continuing to work with you on what is, I think, a very, very important issue uh, for our country and for the world. Thanks very much. Well, Senator King, David Lenderman has nothing on you. That was the best top 10 for the Arctic I've ever heard. Thank you so much, and I know you have to race. No one go anywhere. We will uh, say our farewell to Senator Murkowski and Senator King and welcome our first panel. Dr. Martin Jeffries will be uh, the uh, moderator for that panel, program officer and science officer for the Office of Arctic and Global Prediction, the Office of Naval Research. Dr. Jeffrey is a, a, a long-standing member of the University of Alaska Fairbanks faculty and has been pulled into a variety of U.S. government agencies from the National Science Foundation uh, to the U.S. Arctic Research Commission. So if Dr. Jeffries, if you could come up and if I could welcome our first panel. says it don't go anywhere. We're going to switch very quickly and keep our focus, of course, on the Arctic. But let me turn the proceedings over to you and thank you all again. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Martin Jeffries of the Office of Naval Research, as Heather mentioned a moment ago. Um, this is an English accent, not Australian. Um, and I became a United States citizen three years ago, tomorrow. And as all the US citizens in the room will know, tomorrow is Citizen Day and Constitution Day. And I, was, I became a member of the club at the National Archives, sitting just feet away from the Declaration of Independence. Um, I found that quite ironic as a and, and about to be former Brit. Um, we have a great panel today, um, very diverse in terms of background and experience and the information and knowledge that they're here to share with you today. We have 90 minutes and four speakers, and I'm sure each of the speakers has something very interesting to say, but it's also the discussion with the audience that can be very interesting too. So I want to make sure that we have time for questions. Um, what I would propose is 15 minutes for your remarks. Um, pretend you're at the American Geophysical Union meeting, say, and I will try to keep uh, track of the time. If there are any pressing questions after a particular speaker has made his remarks, then we'll take those questions. Um, but I'd prefer if we leave most of the questions to the end. So. Um, Without further ado, I'd like to introduce on my immediate left, uh, Dr. Larry Hinsman, University of Alaska Fairbanks. Larry is Vice Chancellor for Research at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Uh, previously, he was the Director of the International Arctic Research Center, and he's been a longtime professor of civil and environmental engineering at the university, specializing in permafrost hydrology, 
which, uh, given the changes we're seeing throughout the Arctic environmental system, and not the least in permafrost, that's a very interesting topic to be engaged in now. But I'm sure that uh, Larry will speak more broadly than just permafrost hydrology. And please go ahead. Is this on? Okay, there we go. Um, long time is right. I've been, uh, I've been doing this for, uh, for 33 years, I guess. But uh, um, I published my first paper on climate change in 1986. But essentially, my voice is, is uh, inconsequential compared to the comments from uh, Senator King and Senator Murkowski and now President Obama. So it's, uh, it's wonderful to see the, uh, the powerful impact of, uh, of these recent interests in the, in the Arctic. So um, I'm going to talk. So I was asked to talk about uh, permafrost hydrology, but I, I, for this group, I couldn't couldn't just uh, narrow it to that. So it's going to be much much broader than that. Um, so I'm from the uh, the uh, I'm the vice interim vice chancellor interim vice chancellor interim vice chancellor for research at the University of Alaska. Uh, we claim to be America's Arctic University in that uh, in the last five years we've published more papers on the Arctic than any other institution in the world. And I will uh, I have some reports from the university that I'll. Uh, Gladly share. Um, so the uh, the Arctic has has warmed tremendously in the last few decades, 50 years. Something we've seen tremendous amounts of warming. Um, from this image, if the, if the lights are off, you can see better that uh, that the Arctic has warmed between two and four degrees Celsius in the last 50 years. And most people think so. Between two and four degrees, so what? The uh, you know it's warmed up that much since we left the uh, left our homes this morning. But actually, can you think about, do you know how much it's, uh, the difference between the temperature now and the last ice age? It's between, pardon me? Yeah, three, three four, five degrees between now and, and the last ice age. And so, I mean, the three, or three degrees warming is tremendous. It has huge, huge impacts in climate, tremendous impacts. And so it's, it's, we, must, we must consider what kind of dynamic changes that will, that will implement. And so uh, warming for most regions will implement changes in ecosystem, changes in, in hydrology. But for the Arctic, it'll take us from a, a frozen state to a thawed state. And so it has huge structural implications, huge impacts on the ecosystems, huge, huge consequences. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a lot of those. Um, I wanted to say before I, before I started that uh, much of the work that I'm going to show today has been sponsored by the, uh, by the National Science Foundation, by the NOAA, by uh, Office of, Polar, Office of uh, Naval Research, but most of my research has been sponsored by the uh, National Science Foundation Division of Polar Programs, and so I'm very grateful for that. So, so thank you very much. Um, this this image shows the uh, the distribution of the of the changes that we project to see in temperature across seasons, and for the most part, we expect to see most of the warming to occur in the winter time and in the autumn, with uh, moderate changes in the summer and moderate changes in the springtime. The, uh, the big consequence of, of warming is the effect of, on permafrost. You may be surprised to know that approximately 24% of the northern hemisphere is underlain by permafrost. So it's, it has a huge, huge impact on our, on our northern hemisphere, on the, on the global climate. So the permafrost essentially controls everything in the Arctic. If we have, if we have permafrost, then the, uh, the soils above the permafrost are wet. Where the permafrost, the permafrost holds the water near the surface, and the, and the uh, hydrology, the soil moisture controls the vegetation, controls the regional local climates. As the uh, permafrost degrades, 
you get better infiltration of the uh, soil moisture, the surface becomes drier, the uh, vegetation changes, the, uh, the plants and animals that rely on that moisture rapidly change, the whole system changes. So the permafrost controls everything. And as the climate is warming, we're, it is having dramatic impacts on the permafrost. The, uh, most of the permafrost actually is, is discontinuous permafrost, which means that it's very warm. It's only a degree or two below freezing. And so as that permafrost, as the climate warms, that permafrost is very uh, susceptible to change. And it's, uh, it is changing dramatically all around the whole circumpolar Arctic. Um, as the permafrost changes, we see just a cascade of, of impacts, of consequences to that change. We see, of course, the changes in the hydrology. We also see the changes in the, uh, in the ecosystem that depends on that the hydrology. We're also seeing landscape level changes and, and evolution of the landscape. We're seeing a dramatic increase in the number of, of landslides or of, uh, of uh, uh, debris flows or uh, um, uh, retrogressive th uh, thermocar slumps. So huge changes in the landscape and they're having important civil consequences. Our, the state of Alaska right now is looking at moving the bridge across the Yukon River because a landslide occurred just 300, 300 meters downstream. That, uh, that bridge is where the uh, Trans-Alaska Pipeline is, is right below that bridge. And so these are big deals, huge issues for the, uh, for the state of Alaska and for the nation. And so these, these landslides are occurring all over, the, uh, all over the Arctic, particularly in the warmer areas, in the discontinuous permafrost zones. And they have um, impacts on the, on the civil structure, but also consequences to the vegetation and to the, uh, to the uh, animal species that live there. Um, other important changes we're seeing are the, uh, the consequences to the, to the amounts of carbon that are stored in there. As the uh, permafrost degrades, we see in certain areas, we'll see the uh, surface subside and it gets much, much wetter. In those areas where the permafrost gets warmer and wetter, the methane is just churning out. In areas where it gets warmer and drier, we're seeing the, uh, the uh, carbon is being degraded by uh, aerobically and, and the uh, carbon dioxide is churning out. And so it's important as far as how that carbon is burning off, whether it comes off of CO2 or methane. So this is another complex picture similar to what Senator Murkowski was talking about as far as we have to understand the geophysics, we have to understand the landscape evolution, we have to understand microbial biology, and we have to understand the, uh, the physics and the, the biology that pulls us all together to understand the impacts on the climate. This is another uh, important impact that we're seeing all across Canada, all across Alaska, all across Siberia in that we're, as the permafrost degrades, as I mentioned, the permafrost holds the water close to the surface or near the surface. As the permafrost degrades, we can get channels through the permafrost that allow infiltration to the subsurface groundwater. So we're seeing shrinking lakes all across the, uh, the discontinuous permafrost zone. And this has obviously big impacts on the, uh, on the regional climate, but it also affects the, uh, the native uh, wildlife species and the uh, indigenous populations that rely on those, those uh, populations. So these shrinking lakes are a major, major play a major role in regional climate dynamics and, and have a, must be considered, must be understood, and we must be able to project how those are gonna change into the future. As I mentioned previously, the amount of carbon in the, uh, in the permafrost is, is huge. The carbon reservoirs are, are just tremendous. 
um, this will be my only data slide that I'll be showing today, but the point of this slide is to show that there is actually more carbon in the, uh, in the permafrost than there is in the atmosphere, the whole global atmosphere. So the, uh, much of the carbon is in the deeper soils, the deeper permafrost, and that will take a very long time to uh, degrade on the order of, you know, for the very deep permafrost on the order of 500 to 1,000 years. But there's tremendous reserves in, this, in the top meter, in the top three meters, and that top meter can degrade very, very rapidly, particularly because one of the things is we're also seeing a tremendous increase in the number of wildfires across the Arctic. And so those uh, wildfires can release um, huge amounts of permafrost during the burn, but also in the decades following the burn, just because they uh, expose the uh, subsurface permafrost to, uh, to the direct sunlight, and, and so they, the thawing increases rapidly. And so in the decades following a burn, we get, see huge amounts of, of, of carbon burning off. And so this, uh, this amount of carbon can be released very, very rapidly, and we need to understand and project how that, uh, how that rates of carbon will come off and then how it will affect the, uh, the climate dynamics. So this is, uh, I'm just curious, so how many of you have actually been to the Arctic and seen this type of landscape? Oh, very good, very large number. So this is very typical, very typical landscape in the Arctic. And these, uh, what this is, is called polygonal ground. And the way this ground forms is that uh, when the ground, or the, when the uh, surface cools very rapidly, so say it drops five degrees overnight, the ground will contract somewhat. As it contracts, it can only carry that tension so far, and eventually it will crack. And when it uh, cracks, and in the springtime, when the snow melts, the water will run into that crack. The ground is still very cold, and the water will freeze, and it pushes the soil apart a little bit. And so it, what ends up happening is over, over tens of thousands of years, it develops huge amounts of ice. And so beneath, beneath each of these, these liniments, there is uh, an ice wedge. And those ice wedges can be a, a meter, two meters across, and 10, 20, 30 meters deep. So it can develop tremendous amounts of ice. In an area like this, the ice content, maybe 50% of the ground is, is ice. And so as this, as this ground thaws, as the ice melts, as the surface subsides, we can see just huge, huge changes in the landscape. And you can imagine the, uh, the consequences that has to the, uh, to the surface. So as we get, uh, as those ice wedges degrade, then we can get subsidence near the surface, and that will change the, uh, the drainage patterns on the surface. And so these areas between the ice wedges become much, much drier. The drainage improves, the surface becomes very dry, the vegetation is not adapted to those dry conditions, and the carbon in those areas just burns off like gangbusters. And in these areas right above the ice wedge, that becomes much wetter, and the carbon there, it's very wet, and so the carbon there burns off as methane. And so it's, uh, we're seeing this all across the Arctic, and it's having uh, huge landscape uh, changes and huge consequences to the whole ecosystem. These, these channels between, the, uh, between those polygons are all connected. As one of them starts to degrade, it just expands like a spider web, and the, uh, it, the whole system can change rapidly within a matter of, uh, of years. And so these are some of, the, some of the impacts that we're seeing, some of the landscape changes that we're seeing. As that ice is exposed, as it begins to degrade, it has uh, obvious impacts to the, uh, to the ecosystem, but then if there's any civil infrastructure there, then it also has uh, huge uh, catastrophic impacts to the infrastructure. This is uh, another big issue for us is the coastal erosion. In Alaska, there are 31 villages that are threatened by coastal or 
shoreline erosion. 31 villages that are threatened as, as by a, a, a survey of the, uh, the GAO. Of those 31 villages, 12 are already making plans for relocation. And that is a, a, a huge complex issue for us and an outrageously expensive issue for us. Um, the, the processes that control coastal erosion, again, it's, it's very similar to what Senator Murkowski was talking about as far as a very complex interaction of several processes. So the, the degradation of the uh, shoreline is, are, it's, has impacted, it's controlled by the, uh, by the sea ice, by the degradation of the sea ice. The sea ice is, provides a barrier to the storms. Um, it's, it's impacted by the degradation of the permafrost. It's, it's impacted by the storminess. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very complex process of all of these interacting processes together. The, uh, the other process that's very important in this as far as with respect to the, uh, the communities is that many of the communities want to move from an area that's very similar to where they are now. And so it's a very complex social issues in that we need to help these villages select areas that are going to be stable for many, many decades in, or for long periods into the future and not move into another vulnerable area. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex social issue in that uh, villages that have been forced for various reasons to relocate in the past can set up, uh, unless they're uh, moved into an area that they're happy with, it can set up very complex social problems. and so. We need to we need to re really consider closely how we handle this uh, this important issue. Another issue that we're seeing is just the uh, the change in the uh, the fisheries species. So this uh, this plot in the upper left shows the change of what's called the cool pool or cold pool, and it's related to the extent of the sea ice. So this is uh, just west of Alaska, in the North Pacific. And the uh, plot on the left shows that uh, from 1982 to 1986, that cold pool was very extensive, extensive, going almost down to the Aleutian Islands. And in recent years, it's, uh, it's shrunken considerably. And, uh, and that has huge impacts on the fisheries in that the cold pool essentially has, has uh, trapped the, or forced many of the important fish species to stay within the, uh, the southern regions of the Bering Sea. And now it's allowing them to, to move farther to the, uh, to the south or to the north. Um, and it also has impacts on the, uh, the changes in the species themselves, as far as we're seeing the migration of species uh, primarily to the northward as the, uh, as the uh, coal pool is also extending to the north. So we expect to see a, a projected decrease in important uh, species like the snow crab and the pollock, but it also uh, see a projected increase in some uh, low-value fish such as the uh, arrowtooth flounder. And so this has important financial implications to our, to our fisheries. But also it's very important to the nation. 60% of the nation's seafood actually comes out of the North Pacific. And so this is a big deal for us. Um, the other thing you may have heard about the uh, tremendous amount of walrus that are uh, hauled out near Point Lay. Right now there's 35,000 walrus that are, are on the shore near Point Lay that they typically are dependent to the sea ice. And uh, as we lose the sea ice, they're losing their, their habitat, they're losing the protection. And this is, uh, again, very important because as the uh, walrus are on shore, they're very vulnerable to predators. And the primary problem is, is that when they are spooked by predators or spooked by aircraft, then they will stampede and there's uh, many of these uh, smaller pups are killed. Uh, I think in the time, I think I'm gonna skip. The uh, other thing that we're seeing is just our, that we need to consider is just the, uh, the change in, in ship traffic that we may, may see in the future. 
as the, uh, as the sea ice degrades, we may see, we will see uh, changes in shipping uh, availability. We'll see changes in ship routes. And what we can see is from these two lanes is that the, uh, the pathways of shipping are going to increase, or pathways are going to decrease in, in time, and uh, shipping is going to uh, become much more viable in the Arctic. Um, one point I want to come back to is that the, uh, there are many emerging research questions. The, uh, the, Senator King discussed this as far as what we need to look forward to. Um, the National Academy of Science, National Research Council put out this report last year looking at the emerging research questions. It was focused on what we should look forward to in the next few decades. For many of the researchers, we can think about what we wished we had started 20 years ago and what we wished we had been observing. And so this takes a, a, puts in a great deal of effort trying to imagine what the important questions are to try and help us align our efforts now so we can prepare for the changes that we expect to see. Um, I think I'll skip on this. And, and so these are the important things that I really think that we need to consider going into, uh, into the next few decades. One is building operational capacity, sustaining our long-term observations. We need to grow our human capacity, enhance cooperations. Many of our nations are, are concerned about the same issues, and we can achieve so much more if we share resources, if we share platforms, if we share understanding, share data. Um, we need to uh, manage and share the information that we do collect, and we need to invest, continue to invest in research. Um, and again, primarily, is we, the, one of the most important things we need to do is invest in sustained long-term observations. That's a huge, huge investment opportunity for us, and we really need to complete that. And finally, I wanted to say that there's not all, this climate change stuff is not all bad, and that this is, uh, this is my old dog team, and this is my new dog team. Um, one, last, one last point I want to make is that uh, next year, the University of Alaska in Fairbanks will be hosting the Arctic Science Summit Week, and it'll be the uh, biggest Arctic meeting in 2016, so I invite you all to participate in that. So thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Larry. In the interest of time, uh, I think we'll continue with speakers, and I'm pleased to introduce uh, Richard Glenn uh, from Barrow, Alaska, our northernmost city in the United States, population about 5,000, I think, these days. Um, I first met Richard in the late 1980s. He was a graduate student at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. I was a postdoc and barely out of graduate school myself. And among the few things we have in common is our great good fortune to have both worked with uh, Professor Willie Weeks, who practically invented the field of sea ice geophysics research in at least the English-speaking world. Richard is the vice president, executive vice president for lands and natural resources with the Arctic Slope Regional Corporation. He's a longtime resident of Barrow. In his spare time, he is the co-captain of the Savik Amoak subsistence whaling crew. And if I remember rightly, and correct me, Savik is, has personal meaning to you. I think it might be your Inupiat name, is that correct? You sure remember a lot, Martin. Wow. <laughs> so without further ado, I'm very pleased to introduce Richard. Please go ahead. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, I was asked, I think, to represent business interests and how uh, the Arctic business interests are affected by or contributing to this 
the topic at hand today, which is um, the role of research. And like many other people who speak on Arctic topics, I probably went and cannibalized several other presentations and, um, and tried to present something fresh. But one thing that I always test myself with is this issue of the Arctic. There's a, there's a theme that says that there's one Arctic, but there isn't one Arctic. There's a million different Arctics. It's, it's anytime you use the word the and a noun, you're in trouble. Like the jungle, the Orient, the South. Is there one South or the deep South or the, the East, the West? And I think we run into that same problem with the Arctic. So I, if, if you, you can test yourself. If, you, if a sentence works with the term non-Arctic just as well as it works with the term Arctic, then, then you realize where you're starting to test the boundaries of, of your assumptions. And as soon as I tell you that I'm uncomfortable with the term the Arctic, I'm probably going to flip right over and give you a thousand different generalities about the Arctic. And so I'm, I'm guilty myself of the same type of generalization that I'm going to criticize. But the one thing, and I'm, I'm not sure if I can do, this is a, a figure that I stole from Hayo Eichen, who is a professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. There's a lot of us here that share common roots at, uh, at UAF, and I'm, I'm proud that we're well represented both in the audience and on the dais here. But if you could click on this thing, it would show 30 years of change in the Arctic marine sea ice environment. And the colors, you can see in dark shaded uh, the continents, the land masses, Greenland's on your lower left. And the, and the colors of the ice are coded in that uh, redder and oranger means thicker ice, and bluer and grayer means thinner ice. And what most people know is that the Arctic Ocean freezes every year freezes way south of the Bering Straits, and then it recedes back in summer. In fact, right now we're just at the minimum of ice cover, and we're starting to grow the ice cover again. Um, but since about mid-1970s or 1980s, we're losing um, an alarming amount of multi-year sea ice. So that if you come and visit my town in March, you're going to see a frozen ocean. Uh, and if you visited it in March in, in 1980, you would see something that looks a lot similar. And if you visited in September, you're going to see a bunch of open water. And the same thing looked that way in, in 1980. So for a journalist or a researcher or a visitor to come to our, <coughs> our communities and observe evidence of climate change, you're hard-pressed to find something sexy uh, that really jumps right out at you. But if you look over time, and what's easy to observe over time is the the loss of the multi-year sea ice cover, and that has transformed the marine environment. It's more dynamic, not, nonetheless still freezing every year, but there, there's a lot more uh, um, dynamism thrown into the, the, the freezing season. And we live at, I live at, in Barrow, and it's at the north end of a cold place. And there's a lot more happening in terms of change, interannual change and change through the decades if you go to the south edge of the Arctic system. So go to Diomede Island, go to St. Lawrence Island, go to Kotzebue, go to the interior of Fairbanks, and you'll see a lot more changes than you will see if you come to, uh, to where I live. But nonetheless, there are still changes. And some of the changes are, are built in to uh, the physical environment. If you look at Prudhoe Bay and you look at Barrow, they're right about at the same latitude. Uh, they're both flat-laying, tundra-covered regions. 
But one place has about 2,000 feet of permafrost, and the other one has about 1,000 feet of permafrost. And the mean annual surface temperature in, in both places is about the same. So what, what's going on? And it, all you have to do is dig a little bit into the ground, and you find out that the thermal conductivity of the top several thousand feet of sediment in Prudhoe Bay is different than thermal conductivity of the, of the grounded barrel. I mean, our ground is more like aluminum foil, and Prudhoe Bay's ground is more like styrofoam. It's, one is more insulative than the other. So there's, there's changes like that that are built into the system that need to be understood. Uh, I work for Arctic Slope Regional Corporation, and Arctic Slope Regional Corporation is, is uh, uh, so I have to, I have to do my, the, the purpose of why I was, I was asked to come here. ASRC is, is based on the North Slope. It's formed pursuant to the uh, uh, Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. We have about 13,000 shareholders. Those are the native people who lived on the North Slope and their descendants, the folks who were around when the Settlement Act was passed, and their kids and grandkids. And this, this has been, uh, corporation's been formed since the early 1970s. We own about five million acres of land on the North Slope. A lot of it is uh, mineral rich, so coal, oil and gas, and other minerals exist <clears throat> in our region. And due to the discovery of oil at Prudhoe Bay, a lot of our practices, a lot of our company's efforts are involved in the energy sector. <clears throat> so you can find a lot of uh, current efforts in mineral development, uh, energy development, are involving our regional corporation. And this is true for basic science data gathering, too. Our village corporations, which are kind of like a microcosm of our regional corporation, are also actively engaged in science. And the, one of the messages I hope to leave you with when I'm done is to kind of go local first. There's a lot of, uh, there's a wealth of local knowledge, uh, traditional knowledge, people who have been observing the same things over and over for countless generations. They've, they've developed a, a, a great backdrop for any new research project, data acquisition, or, or, or the study of something because there's a peculiar habit that people have who are Arctic researchers. They think they've seen something, when they've seen it for the first time, they think they've discovered something. And really, uh, in many cases, it's been observed uh, by others for countless generations. This is a, a, a sketch of the marine ice environment that was drawn by my friend Craig George, who lives in Barrow. And uh, it, it basically shows in cartoon format what it's like to be in the near coastal areas in an active marine sea ice environment. You have uh, pressure ridges and um, moving ice. It's kind of like plate tectonics in fast forward. And then you have this landfast ice, which becomes a piece of the geography for, for everybody, for researchers, for local folks, for wildlife. And it's just a part of our world from about, forms, it forms right about November. And it's with us until, in, in my part of the world, it's with us usually until the 4th of July. And then for a few months of the year, we have open water and mixed ice conditions. And then we end up back in an environment like this. And uh, I talk about a million different Arctic environments. And you can, and so the north edge of Alaska is where I live. This is the, uh, the migration trail of one Arctic species. This is bowhead whales. And in the winter, they're in the south, South Bering Sea, and almost to the Sea of Ohotsk at times. And then as, as uh, as the ice slowly recedes in springtime, they move 
with the receding ice pack along Leeds. And as uh, in the fall time, which is now, we have hundreds of miles of open water. The bowhead whales make their way into the Chukchi and the Beaufort Sea. And uh, I'm sorry, in the springtime, they make their way into the Chukchi and Beaufort Sea. And they spend the summer in, in waters offshore Canada. And then as the ice forms again, it kind of is a marching curtain back down southward. The, the bowhead whales make their westward migration and stay near, near the edge of the ice pack as it advances southward. <clears throat> In spite of such uh, geographically diverse areas, it's these huge sweeping migrations of both uh, ice, in this case, daylight, or animals that ties our regions together, which is one of the reasons why you can talk about the Arctic, because we have some of these commonalities that tie uh, uh, geographically diverse areas together. And, uh, Animal migrations are one of them. So people in Anadir, um, Uelan, St. Lawrence Island, Wales, Point Hope, Barrow, Kachtovik, Barter Island, all the way into the Mackenzie Delta are tied together by a common language, common culture, common lifestyle, even though what looks uh, normal in Wainwright, for example, doesn't look so normal in, in Wales. Um, this is, some of these are like, this is for, the, for me, these are like home pictures, right? So the, I took a lot of these pictures. So this is, uh, this is the uh, near shore ice environment. There's a lot of rubble. Um, you have to be a, uh, a connoisseur to know that the, someone's been active in here with a pickaxe and trying to make a trail through, through that rubble. And this is what we do every year is we chop trails through the ice to, uh, to access that open lead, the coastal flaws in the ice cover that allow us to go hunting. And it's the same way that researchers get to the water's edge to do their field research. It's hard work. Um, but like the, probably like the prison gangs who are making roads in the south, you, you, start, to be, uh, you start to have an appreciation for, for what you're uh, creating. I mean, I, I learn a lot about ice by swinging a pick through it. <clears throat> These are uh, a couple of the whaling captains from... Uh, our area, the man on the left is no longer with us, but they're here as a reminder for me to say that uh, the, the, uh, there can be a great connection between the acquisition of information and consulting local experts. In fact, when you get the guys who are most knowledgeable about something, whether it's caribou or fish or ice or the marine environment, you, you put a, a university visitor there together with a, a visit, an, an elder, the cultural difference, differences disappear, and you start to basically have colleagues talking to each other. And it's a real gift. I mean, it's one of my personal uh, the high points of my life is to watch this happen. It, it, all, it becomes a discussion among colleagues rather than uh, a, a scientist up here and a person possessing traditional knowledge down here. And this has been very useful to marine uh, researchers in our area. Long, hundreds of years of history of uh, locals working together with uh, visiting researchers. And it's a, a heritage that we're proud of, and it's a, one that's going to continue. Uh, this last few photos shows uh, marine science professors and sea ice researchers talking with local whaling captains as they compare uh, ocean currents that are observed by high-frequency radar and compare them to the the memory of the, the seasoned whaling captains in the area. And when you watch those guys get together around a map or a marine chart, it's a, it's a pretty awesome thing to see. 
So go local first, it seems to be a good mantra to understand these, these uh, various different Arctic environments and what role research has to play there. Start as local as you can, build with the expertise that exists in the region, and don't always assume that when you see something for the first time that you happen to be discovering. Those are pretty good rules of thumb, and then you'll learn, uh, I think, uh, like I do, that there is not one Arctic, but thousands of different Arctic environments. Finally, uh, there is no economy in our region without resource development, and our communities are completely dependent upon ongoing resource development right now. And resource development can only be done responsibly if it's done with the best state of knowledge. And in fact, it kind of ties all this together. The, the, uh, the best development in our region is one that's taken advantage of the, the, the best that science has to offer and the best that traditional knowledge has to offer. And, and that's the only way that uh, um, development should continue in our part of the world. We depend on it, but we also depend on our understanding of the Arctic environment and the environment itself for our livelihood. So thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Our next speaker is George Rowe of the University of Alaska Fairbanks, where he's a research professor with the Alaska Center for Energy and Power. Uh, George's research focus includes energy and energy management with an emphasis on their relationship to sustainable community development and capacity building. He brings an interesting um, career background to now being a professor and working on energy issues in Alaska because he worked for 35 years for the Boeing company and he still lives in Seattle. He hasn't made that leap yet up to live in Alaska, but maybe he's working on that. Um, so please, George, tell Thank us about energy in Alaska. Thank you very much. Uh, it is so exciting to be here. Uh, I bring greetings from our director, Gwen Holdman, who is right now in Guam. Uh, you may have read in some of the remarks from the Glacier Review that what happens in the Arctic does not stay in the Arctic. Uh, we are very, very much subscribed to that. Uh, we believe that international collaboration is what we need. Uh, the president said that we are in this together, we've got work to do, and we've got to do it together, and we fully believe that. So it, it's so exciting to meet so many different people to work together. Uh, it's interesting for us to be here in that uh, the Alaska Center for Energy and Power focuses on applied research. We don't do basics research in terms of observing soil or ice or mammals, but we work on the energy infrastructure that lets those things happen. And it's the energy infrastructure that's required for businesses to uh, thrive and survive, in some cases, in the Arctic environment. So it's a, it's a, a really important role, I believe. So, we're going to talk about several different things. Uh, I'm going to show you a little bit of background in terms of the uh, context for our work, talk a little bit about what we do, and then show how that maybe uh, goes into a, a broader perspective for other industries that may not think of themselves as Arctic-oriented. Environmental change. When you think of Alaska, you may well think of things like this beautiful scenery, uh, tourism, ancient and wise traditions, uh, 
millennia of observing the environment, people that have adapted to many, many changes, much wisdom there. You, you may think of uh, animals, whether they're moose or whales or whatever. Those are all highly true. Of course, there's the aurora. But this is the Arctic as it's becoming. Not everywhere, and as, as we heard, if you go to Barrow, the ice may look the same if you look at it one from one year versus another. But these are realities. In the top left, that is Fairbanks. That is, it. there are times when the temperature inversions are so severe that the, it's difficult to see. It's like fog in San Francisco. Uh, the, the smoke from burning and the ice that's frozen out of vehicle exhausts obscures uh, vision very significantly. Uh, we hope not to see a lot of things like the Exxon Valdez, uh, which is in the lower left in terms of spills, but it's a reality. Uh, whether it's an oil spill from a, a rig or it's an, a spillage from a vessel that's transiting through the Arctic, these are all realities that we must prepare for. And these locations where these may occur are far away from where the Coast Guard bases are currently located. We need infrastructure to be able to respond locally. One of the things that the state of Alaska has done is equipped emergency responders, local fishermen, who can be the first on the scene to, to deal with some of these issues. But we need to do more of that. Uh, one other area that I might profile, uh, you see in the top right, uh, that's a town uh, of Shishmaruf. Uh, and that's, that is a no-kidding house falling into the ocean. And there's, there's no debate about the reality of the climate changing in Alaska. You just have to go and, and look around and you can see that it is happening. And the consequences and the rate are staggering. Uh, it's a very complex system. So I'm a mechanical engineer by, by training and I worked in a wide range of systems at Boeing. And I've, there as well as even more so in the Arctic, nothing is an isolated system. Everything is interconnected. And so when you look at a change in one, you must recognize that you may not understand what else is happening. So things can avalanche uh, of one another. One area that I'm, I'd like to do a, a very, we're very excited about a contract that we just landed uh, with the Forest Service to use unmanned systems to help us assess the health of our forests. There are parts of Alaska that no human has mapped in terms of what the state of the forest is because it's too dangerous to overfly or it's too far from any place that we can put a manned aircraft. We believe that unmanned systems, in addition to overhead assets, will help us address uh, some of those challenges. Those are gonna need energy, onboard energy and energy at the basing. So, what do we do about all of this? Well, we are uh, focusing uh, in our area, we have a main office in Fairbanks, and in there we have a, a laboratory that we've created that can represent any uh, energy grid in the state of Alaska. Uh, not necessarily in terms of complete power, but in terms of the configuration, different uh, matches and mixes of technology, and there are many as you look at different, different towns. We focus on trying to develop solutions that are not gonna turn into junk, but things that will be able to have uh, a wide range of uh, realistic scenarios brought to them. You may have heard of the valley of death. Uh, so many technology investments stop 
uh, there's much money poured in, and then the technology doesn't go forward because there's uh, some un, un, uh, foreseen consequence or difficulty. Our job is to try to help energy technologies overcome that kind of a challenge. We work in a wide range of different research areas across the state. This is a partial list. I left off uh, many of the locations in order that you could see the distribution. Uh, and I will let you just look at the, the list there. Uh, we are engaged sometimes doing this work directly, other times supporting others that are doing that, uh, whether in data gathering or in uh, helping mature technologies for them. So energy in Alaska. There are many challenges uh, in Alaska. Many of them are rooted, of course, in the climate, but many are also rooted in the sheer size of the place. Alaska's uh, about two to two and a half times the size of the state of Texas. And there are almost as many people in Washington, D.C. as there are in the state of Alaska. There's a little over one person per square mile. That's a lot of separation between towns. And in much of Alaska, uh, these towns have fewer than 300 people. And they are hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of miles from one another. Not always, but many times. So building out infrastructure, much, much like what is known in the lower 48, is an amazingly uh, challenging and likely unlikely uh, scenario. So many of these towns have their own usually diesel-based generation systems. Uh, it's, it's essential if you're going to have reliable power uh, in this kind of a context. However, in many areas, there are opportunities for integrating renewable resources. Uh, there's wind in many of the shore communities. Amazingly enough, there's solar in much of the state that can be used significantly during large parts of the year. Uh, there are hydrokinetic resources. Uh, one of the things that I will, I'll show you a little bit later is part of our hydrokinetic research program. Microgrids, uh, who would say that they are familiar with microgrids? Okay, uh, that's very typical. Uh, microgrids are basically a system unto itself with a variety of resources, generating power, conditioning the power, storing energy, managing the loads, uh, either, and storing energy in, in addition. They are classically able to operate as part of a larger system or in a standalone way. So you can think of critical infrastructure like a hospital or a military base. Typically, these are able to island their energy systems but they're also typically connected to a larger grid. That's not the case in Alaska, in many of these rural communities. And what you have then is a very small grid that when there are changes in how the wind is blowing, how the sun is shining, a cloud goes over, uh, whatever the situation might be, the, if there, a large load comes on at a seafood processor, these have huge mag uh, effects as they ripple through the power grid. And so integrating these very important renewables is a very challenging job, and one, that's one of our primary roles, is helping with that. It's, it's said that, uh, and it's not just said, it's actually fact, Alaska has 12% of the world's microgrids. It's a huge business, base, uh, business opportunity, and one that we're hoping that industry from the lower 48 
as well as across the world will be able to take advantage of. So hydrokinetics. We're here talking about climate change. At the top left, that is a hydrokinetic system that ran afoul of debris in the river. As the climate changes, we're seeing rainfall happening in areas and at rates that weren't typically experienced. Many of the rivers in Alaska changed their banks. You see huge shore erosion. That means that, that logs come down, branches come down, some of them floating, some buoyancy neutral, some bumping along the bottom. It's a disaster when those hit a uh, river, river energy device or a tidal energy device. So we're looking at debris diversion and debris detection so that we can both push debris out of the way and also detect it and perhaps get systems out of the way before uh, an impact occurs. Uh, the top right illustration is a test site that we have in the Nanana region in the Tanana River. Uh, we are evaluating different hydrokinetic systems there before they go out into the field. In the lower right, you see a system in the village of Igiagig. Uh, Igiagig, as you may recall, is one of the villages that was profiled during some of the uh, glacier-related uh, comments. Low-temperature geothermal and heat recovery are other niche areas for Alaska. And the right-hand side, you see an, what's called an organic Rankin cycle. So it's basically a system like your refrigerator. It takes energy from one temperature, a low temperature, evaporates a working fluid, and runs it through an, a turbine to generate power. So we can do that. Uh, with geothermal at temperatures uh, lower than anywhere else in the world uh, based on the application space that's been done at Manly and Tina Hot Springs. And we can use these systems to recover energy from cooling systems and exhaust stacks and generators to make the overall efficiency of a system improve. I mentioned solar. Uh, this is the Northwest Arctic Borough. I love this illustration because what happened was a group of towns, all too small to do something on their own over and over again. But part of one of these uh, regional corporations like Arctic Slope, this is the Nana Regional Corporation, they did the engineering to design the core of their system. But then they allowed local flexibility in terms of how they sited their, their solar arrays. And they uh, are using these to uh, power their uh, water treatment system, pumping water, heating water, et cetera which is a really important service to Arctic communities. And I'll pause here for a moment. Uh, this is an example where climate change is unpredictable and has un unanticipated consequences. Uh, talking to Ingemar Mathiasen, who was the energy coordinator up here, uh, the clouds, there are some persistent clouds that typically hang out there, and they're moving. And so, that means that they're starting to mask the arrays, and so they're going to have to relocate arrays. So no one knows where these clouds will perch, uh, and it's important to be able to anticipate. The sun may not always be exactly where it used to be. Well, the sun will be there, but there might be clouds in between, right? And so you've got to figure out how are you going to adapt. Uh, St. Paul Island is a small island in uh, the western part of the state. Uh, it goes, it has a highly integrated uh, energy storage system that uses thermal energy, not just electrical energy, and integrates wind. There are many experiences in Alaska that uh, we think we can leverage, but I'm 
going to have to fast forward to a couple things here. Uh, there's a couple key words that I really think is important for us. Uh, resilience is a really important topic. We, we talked about village relocation. Uh, that's going to happen again and again across the world. Sea levels are rising. We need to be able to figure out ways to move villages, to move people groups in ways that give them infrastructure that will work for the way they want to be uh, and do it in an affordable, not one-off kind of way. We I just, I'd like to close with this particular slide. The Alaska Center uh, for Microgrid Technology Commercialization was recently established thanks to a grant from the Economic Development Administration. And we are uh, looking at documenting our needs, publishing those uh, globally, and looking at uh, sharing lessons learned from experience uh, with different systems and bringing a wide range of technologies up to Alaska to explore their uh, potential and to leverage uh, the fact that costs are high for energy. And so things that make a difference may not need incentives or any other kind of uh, economic boost to make them work. Just the sheer price of energy savings will make things pencil much faster uh, in our climate. And we are excited about helping to move that forward. So I'd, I'd like to end with a couple things. Uh, waste to energy is a big deal, not because of the energy, but because of waste management. As the permafrost changes, there's no, we have no clue where the leachate and other contaminants from these dumps and sewage lagoons is going to go. Uh, it's going to go into groundwater, and that groundwater may be uh, impacting fishing grounds, and it may be impacting community drinking. It's a huge issue, and there are systems that the Department of Defense is developing that may allow us to bring deployable systems to various sites to uh, help to reduce that challenge. Is anything moving? It says I'm done. So uh, I guess I would just like to close with uh, a quote that my, my daughter gave to me. And she said, it's, it's on my little desk in her handwriting. It says, you cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good that you can do. And I like to pair that with something from Teddy Roosevelt, who said, do what you can with what you have where you are. And so we're excited to not, not despair, but to move forward doing what we can now uh, and paying attention so we can do it wisely. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, George. It's fascinating to hear about alternative energy in a state that's been so dependent for so long on oil, and may, long may it continue. The alternative energy, that is. Uh, last, but very not, definitely very not least, uh, Dr. Paul Majewski is our final speaker this morning. Uh, Paul is director and distinguished Maine professor. He was introduced briefly earlier by Senator King 
and Paul is with the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. His website says that he is an explorer, a glaciologist, and a climate scientist. Um, a teaching moment here, glaciology is the study of snow and ice in all its forms. In Paul's particular case, his choice has been to study glaciers and ice sheets. And particularly, to me, what he's best known for is his study of paleoclimates through the analysis of deep ice cores drilled from, for example, the Greenland ice sheet and also from Antarctica. So, Paul, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Uh, well, climate change in the Arctic. Who would have thought that 25 years ago we would even be talking about climate change? And who 25 years ago would have ever thought that we would be talking about the Arctic while sitting in DC? Both of those things have appeared on our radar very, very quickly. And that's really the punchline for my presentation, is how quickly things move. I'll talk about magnitudes, rates, and impacts of these things on, uh, on extreme events. Our institute is very holistic. We work all over the world. We look at physical, chemical, biological, and social implications of climate change. And we study modern climate as recorded roughly for the last 100 years. Most importantly, something called climate reanalyses, uh, which is done in several different ways. People take existing written records and then distribute them over the planet in different ways, coming up with slightly different versions. I'll talk about the use of those. And remotely sense records. The whole purpose for doing this is to be able to make better predictions for the future. Part of that is monitoring. Part of it, however, is also going back in time. If you go back in time, you have the best analogs for warmer and colder climates, and you also begin to understand what the dynamic range of the climate is, which is critical. Understanding how much the climate system can change is very, very important. This is uh, the greatest seasonal event on the planet. Uh, the seasonal growth and decay of sea ice in the two hemispheres. It determines the radiation balance to a large degree, also controlled by radiation balance. It determines ocean and atmospheric circulation to some degree, uh, and it results in changes to ecosystems, and it, re and it also uh, provides this process called polar amplification. Polar amplification because when the surface of the Earth is white, reflects a great deal of radiation, and when, of course, you turn it to dark, quite the opposite. There are a lot of ways of looking at how the climate has changed in the Arctic. One is to look at a, a time series up here. And this is the Arctic as measured uh, over 60, from 60 degrees north to 90 degrees north. Obviously, there has been a rather dramatic change with some variability. And if you take a look at the spatial uh, distribution of this change, looking at two different reanalyses, you see that the way they look at this is different, but nevertheless, Arctic warming is clear. If you take a look at the very same approach except for precipitation, you see that since 1979, which is as far back as the reanalyses records are typically used, uh, there's been tremendous variability, slight, slight increase, and the maps show us slightly different uh, changes over uh, the Arctic. The Arctic is a complex place. Uh, as Richard Glenn said, there are many different Arctics. Uh, so what controls this variability? and what controls the trend. There are natural processes in the ocean uh, which actually distribute heat. Heating over the planet is uneven. Uh, the equatorial regions are heated more, therefore you want to redistribute that heat. And there are also uh, 
There are processes of variability in the atmosphere that redistribute heat. And these have a fairly regular pattern, but not an absolutely regular pattern in either rate, uh, timing, or magnitude. If you try to subtract these, this system by which heat is released to the ocean and the atmosphere, and for example, look at one little place, Thule Greenland, which is not one that has changed as much as others, you find out that this is the explanation for the, the uh, variability that uh, is actually observed and also comes from the ocean and atmosphere. And that blue line up there shows you the remainder. This is presumably what cannot be explained by variability as understood over the last few decades, number one. And it's non-significant. It's about 0.38 degrees centigrade uh, per, uh, per decade. That's quite significant. And that all assumes that the natural processes that release heat always operate the same way, and they don't. The things that we've been doing to the atmosphere uh, and through greenhouse gas warming are actually impacting the way even variability operates. In our institute, uh, we're particularly interested in going back through time. We use ice cores, which allow us to study storm by storm, year by year, going back tens and hundreds of thousands of years. We can measure all of these things, temperature, precipitation. I won't read them off to you. But of these, the one that arguably is the most important or one of the most important is atmospheric circulation because where the wind blows, that's where heat goes, that's where moisture goes, and that's where pollutants go. If you understand, for example, the shift in atmospheric circulation over uh, Asia, the Indian monsoon, you have explained a problem which plagues half of the world's population. So we do this uh, by tracking air masses, putting, seeing chemical fingerprints so we know where they come from. Classic examples include dust that comes off the Sahara, uh, sulfate smoke that comes from industrial activity. We can look at 100 different chemicals that allow us to track uh, changes in uh, air masses. Whoops, I got ahead of myself there. Uh, and we did this, we've done it in many places, but one of the places that we did it was Greenland. Uh, and in Greenland, we changed the understanding of climate change completely changed the paradigm. And you'll see why this change of paradigm is so important, and it's the primary message I have. Uh, during uh, periods when there's a lot of ice cover, 18,000 years ago in the Northern Hemisphere, the winds, the westerly winds, the edge of the jet stream, which separates cold air from warm air, tends to go equatorward and tends to be rather straight because you have a large white surface on the Northern Hemisphere. Once uh, you reduce the ice cover, uh, ice sheets and sea ice extent, the division between cold and warm air, the jet stream becomes much more irregular, allowing warm masses to penetrate farther north, cold air pe uh, to penetrate farther south. This is key. So with this record, we were able to tell how fast climate could change, uh, why fast climate change is manifested, why in fact climate change is it all and how much of a change is, how even a small change can have a dramatic impact on humans. Uh, a very quick review, this is the time period zero, 120,000 years ago that this annually resolved record covers. You can see that prior to 1992, the understanding was that climate operated quite slowly over many thousands of years, got to a period 18,000 years ago, which there was dramatic cooling, growth of northern hemisphere ice sheets. Within a few thousand years, those melted, and we entered a relatively mild period. 
of the last 10,000 years, which is key because that's when civilization emerged. Without this mild climate, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We wouldn't have large cities. We discovered in the early 1990s the situation is quite different. There can be massive, abrupt shifts in storm patterns, precipitation, and temperature that operate faster than a political cycle within one to two years, faster than a political cycle, and can be sustained for decades or more, and this is abrupt climate change. This is a complete paradigm shift, because prior to this, because it was believed that the atmosphere operated so slowly, the climate operated so slowly, it was felt you could do anything, you could pump anything you wanted into the atmosphere, it wouldn't have an effect. How, does these abrupt, how do these abrupt climate uh, shifts occur? There's the jet stream in uh, summer condition, it moves farther north, divider between cold and warm air. There's the jet stream in uh, the winter condition. It's fast snaps in the position of the jet stream being sustained in summer or winter conditions for a longer period of time. Uh, why does it change? Well, these are all the things that control uh, climate, the earth, where the earth is with respect to the sun, greenhouse gases, uh, changes in energy output of the sun, dusts, volcanoes. These are all, the heat is circulated throughout the ocean. It's impacted, uh, it Im precipitation and temperature impacts glaciers. These all come together. The things with the red stars on them are the things that if they operate fast enough or come together can produce abrupt climate change. Change in climate operating faster than a political cycle sustained for decades or more. Uh, and if you take a look at how humans can actually impact the climate system, you see that we obviously have impacted greenhouse gases. CO2 levels have risen 100 times faster than they have in the last 800,000 years. Methane levels are about to start doing something very similar. We've affected uh, dust. We've created an Antarctic ozone hole, which is actually the way changes in energy output from the sun impact our climate through changes in ozone. And all of these things can create melting uh, uh, places like the Greenland ice sheet, which can, which can change ocean circulation and ice dynamics. How small a change is important? This is the last 10,000 years, zero to 10,000 uh, years ago. And this is a, a measure from our record of shorter summers, a measure of longer summers. When the summers are long in some parts of the world, that means that they don't get precipitation. Classic example of one of many abrupt climate change events 4,200 years ago, the collapse of the Mesopotamian Empire happened super fast because of a small shift in moisture-bearing winds determined by the temperature difference in the planet. Something very similar happened to the Mayan uh, Empire and the disappearance of them. In the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they've made predictions about areas that will be in drought by 2070, probably much faster than that, probably actually today. And interestingly enough, in particular, one of these, the, uh, the location of the ancient Mesopotamian Empire is smack dab in the middle of Syria, Iraq, and Iran. What goes on in the Arctic impacts regions far to the south. Uh, and it can also, along with uh, changes in southern hemisphere, lead to water towers. In this particular case, Tajikistan and Lesotho, regions that happen to have water for various reasons, completely surrounded by dry areas, places in which there will be political turmoil in the future as a consequence of water uh, resources, largely, not exclusively, largely controlled by the temperature differences being produced today in the Arctic. If we take a look at the evolution of warming over the last 15 years prior to the 
compared to the 15 years before, a little bit of warming in the southern hemisphere, actually cooling. This has to do with the westerly winds. I can explain later. But it's the north that's really changed uh, the greatest amount, in particular sea ice extent and continental areas. Why is this important? When you begin to warm the Arctic much more than you warm the rest of the northern hemisphere, uh, the net result is that the barrier between cold air and warm air weakens. This is a true wall, the westerlies. And when that begins to weaken, as I showed a little bit earlier, you have much more north-south exchange of air. So how much has this actually happened? Uh, if you take a look at the records uh, for the last few years, there have been parts of the Arctic, in particular the eastern Arctic, where temperature change within a five-year period has been as much as five degrees centigrade. That is equivalent in those localized areas, not small areas, but localized areas, to a doubling uh, of, sea, of uh, the length of the summer. The last time that happened was probably 11,650 years ago, based on counting back year by year, because we can actually measure using laser technology at very high resolution, this transition from periods of short summer uh, to very long summer. It happened within a year or two. So we are clearly embarking on a very, very dramatic period. Abrupt climate change, discovered only 20 years ago. You add to that <clears throat> Arctic warming, which is changing the thermal balance of the northern hemisphere. And then you add to that these extreme embayments of the jet stream because of more exchange of air back and forth north-south. And the longer these embayments are, as discovered by colleagues in, at Rutgers University, the more slowly these systems pass through. Why is this important? In Maine, uh, the eastern uh, home to the Arctic in the United States, this last winter and the winter before, we actually had lobster boats frozen in the bays. Uh, this was despite the fact that the entire northern hemisphere was warming the reddish colors, some variability, but nevertheless still quite a bit of warming in the last uh, 30 years, despite the fact that the Arctic, depending on how you count it, was 2 to 3 degrees centigrade warming in the last uh, 30 years and up to 5 degrees centigrade in the eastern Arctic. And yet, if you look at eastern North America, that cold tongue of air that made its way down, yeah, there's been warming, but there's been a tremendous amount of variability. This is a surprise we didn't expect. We now understand the fact that it can happen. The jet stream is a big, big story. It's what's creating a lot of the cold. Uh, a lot of the extreme conditions and extreme events that we're seeing around the planet. Quick recap. Recent warming in the Arctic is the most dramatic that we can at least measure based on our understanding for roughly the last 12,000 years. Doubling of uh, the length of the summer season, critically important to ecosystems, methane release, release of fresh water from melting ice. Arctic warming has caused flattening of the thermal gradient. It's the winds generated by this thermal gradient that actually transport moisture, heat, and pollutants, giving us the more cold and warm air comes is, that's juxtaposed throughout the northern hemisphere, the more extreme events. These consequences are hemispheric. When you add in the changes that are occurring in the southern hemisphere, they become global. Warm, they become global. Uh, abrupt Arctic warming is likely just an early trigger of events that are about to come. Therefore, we need to be smart about how we develop plausible scenarios for the future and engage thinking about abrupt climate change. A couple of quick things, other things that our institute does. Uh, 
We have developed uh, models that allow one to see how biomes change under gradually warming conditions. We work in lakes to see how temperature change in lakes will affect biology. We've been working uh, radar below the Greenland ice sheet to see where the wet places are that allow ice to move more quickly. Uh, we've worked in places where we can show two small glaciers that have raised sea level 10% over a five-year period. Just two small glaciers, there are tons more. Uh, learned about the impact of warm ocean water uh, and looking at uh, changes in the distribution of icebergs, finding good tools for understanding these things. We've also developed something called Climate Futures, where we take a lot of the software visualization tools that I've just shown you and add to these understanding of vulnerabilities to develop plausible scenarios. And what are the plausible scenarios? This is the punchline. They're either linear, abrupt, or multiple abrupt. We've already had one abrupt. There is no reason to assume that we won't have many other steps of abrupt ch climate change. And that's the way we need to think for the future. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I think most people in the room will remember the polar vortex events of early 2014. And I think the messages for those who live in Washington, D.C., that were affected by the polar vortex, and people who live elsewhere on the eastern side of the United States, we can expect more and more intense polar vortex events. Frankly, I, I'm not too bothered about it. I'm happy to see the Potomac River freeze over since I'm a glaciologist. I study snow and ice. The meeting started a little late, and that meant the panel began a little late, so I'll beg uh, Heather to allow us a little time here uh, for questions from the audience. I'm sure there must be questions, and so please, if you have a question, put up your hand. I believe there are microphones to be circulated so that we can hear those questions, and we'll take a few minutes. A question at the back. Could you introduce yourself, please, when you uh, ask Thank you all very much. I'm Lauren Hershey. I'm an attorney. I know nothing about science, so I'm a typical American, uh, perhaps. <laughs> but I did have some Justice Department experience uh, 30 years ago breaking up AT&T. We'll talk about that another day. What is the scenario to deal with the perma permafrost? Do we have remediation opportunities, or are we stuck in an irreversible trend? I hope that's a reasonable question. Can I take that? So um, we do have engineering solutions that can deal with permafrost thaw on very local scales. And so we can protect buildings. We can protect infrastructure. There are new, there are new techniques being developed to protect roads over permafrost. But on massive scales that will affect, uh, will affect ecosystems, no. There's, uh, there's no way to protect it. Rafe, please go ahead. Yes, I, this is a question. I'm Rafe Pomerantz. I'm chair of Arctic 21. Um, I was intrigued by Dr. Mayarsky. Did I say it correctly? Uh, one aspect of your uh, presentation suggests that the paleo climatic evidence strongly supports this the centrality of this differential between polar and mid-latitude temperatures and its impact on the jet stream, which in turn has all those effects. So we've been in the middle of this sort of scientific upheaval about whether Arctic amplification is indeed affecting mid-latitude weather. 
Um, but I, and it seems to be the evidence is, continues to build of the relationship. So my question is, if I understand it correctly, that the paleo evidence is a, would lead you to believe that's not such a surprise. Uh, yes, that's true. It's really not such a surprise. In fact, the whole concept of the polar vortex has been around for quite a while. I think it's just really been a matter of uh, not having it well enough understood. Uh, but the relationship between polar regions and the mid to low latitudes has been a strong one, and as has the relationship between equatorial latitudes and other parts of the world. The Earth, as we know, the atmosphere and the ocean are all connected. In the case of the Northern Hemisphere, because of the fact uh, that we have alternating ocean continent, ocean continent, it really sets up a very easy system by which you can have cold and, air and warm air exchanged under the right conditions, which we have right now. Question over on the left. Hi, Sydney Johnson from Denton's. Um, Paul, I have a question for you. In regards to the really large forest fires that we're having in the lower 48 this year, 400, 500, 600,000 acres of fires, in your map there, you've got volcanoes and you've got you know coal burning and whatnot. Have you factored that in separately and or could you? And could you also answer, uh, not only from a smoke, but, but raising the air condition? I, I would suspect that this would also have a big, big um, impact on the Arctic. And I just wondered if your institution is doing anything to help study that, because we can't stop a volcano, but we could fight a forest fire harder, presumably, if we had more resources. But I think having your kind of data would be helpful in trying to get appropriations for that. Thank you. Uh, that's a great observation, and in fact, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the mechanisms by which forest fires have a dramatic impact on the distribution of snow and ice is by changing the color of the surface snow and ice uh, to darker color, and the net result is that you can actually have a more melting. It has air quality impacts, it has heat trapping impacts, and it also has those albedo impacts, changing of the color. Uh, so th that the fact that we are having so many more forest fires, there is little doubt that this will begin to become an important contributor. If you go to the Himalayas, uh, just simply uh, the burning from uh, dung fires, uh, industrial activity is one of the major reasons for uh, amplified melt in the glaciers of the Himalayas. Question from John Farrell here in the front. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to ask a question of uh, Richard Glenn, a former commissioner. Um, Richard, uh, there has been some discussion about the need for research on oil spills in water. And there has even been the suggestion of the possibility of small, controlled, deliberate spills of small amounts of oil in waters in order to better understand cleanup techniques, mitigation, and so on. How do you think residents of the North Slope might respond to that, uh, that possibility. Would they be supportive of such a thing, or would they be too concerned about something like that? I think they'd be completely supportive. The uh, United States has been almost standing out in its reluctance to do real-world spill tests in icy conditions. And so we've had to go to eastern Canada and places uh, to, to observe those kind of efforts. And anything that... Um, that we could do in a controlled, environmentally responsible way 
I think uh, uh, would generate a huge, great, a great increase in understanding of what what the effects of a spill are, how it can, how it should be treated, how it could be remedied, and uh, real-world testing should be on the, on the list of things to try. Yeah. Thank you, Richard. I'm told that Dr. Holdren has arrived, so we'll take one more question, have a very quick break, and uh, return to hear Dr. Holdren and the second panel. So is there a, a final question? Uh, Milton Eaton, uh, Eaton Allen Institute. Uh, my question is for the whole panel. Uh, we have the picture painted, uh, but it seems to me we are beginning to have uh, more people talking about adaption and what we can do to adapt to the changes rather than stopping the changes. Uh, are you working on possible adaptions to make the effect of these abrupt changes uh, less? The adaptation is a really big question, and it affects all aspects of the ecosystem, some of which we can't anticipate. And so we need to address as much as we do know and build in as much flexibility as we can. You might recall uh, me emphasizing resilience and ad adaptation as key things for our technology evolution. We need to have infrastructure and systems to support people living where they are uh, that are not locked down. That, that can be morphed, can be relocated maybe even, uh, and that is part of what we're trying to do at, at, from an energy perspective is create systems that can use local uh, environmental resources with diesel and other um, energy sources and storage, et cetera. I, I think it's an, an, a really important question, and I, we, we can't focus on adaptation as an excuse for not dealing, though, with some of, some of the potential causes of, of the challenges ahead. Final comment from a panelist, Richard. Short answer is yes. Uh, we have to adapt, roll with the punches, and uh, I, I, I think that, uh, that that's community survival. And um, some, of, some of the reasons we are where we are today are beyond the issues of gradually rising sea level or a warming climate, and it's community change itself. Uh, the older communities used to be a little bit easier to move around, but now we have sewage plants and power plants and landfills and, and things that the rest of the world takes for granted. It's a lot harder to move those. We have a bigger physical footprint in each of our communities, and to call them villages sometimes does us a disservice because they have everything that small cities in America have, and um, that makes the problem even more thorny when you're talking about moving a whole community. <clears throat> so yes, uh, we try to resist the canary in the coal mine analogy because this is the place where we want to raise our children and our grandchildren, so we adapt uh, or, or we're in peril already. Final word from Larry. So the, uh, the people of the Arctic are very, very innovative and, and adaptive, and they have uh, developed many techniques for dealing with a rapidly changing environment. We've, we've, we've witnessed tremendous amounts of changes, and they've, they've, as Richard just said, rolled with the punches. So one of the things that, uh, that the AMAP, the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program, 
is doing is, is developing this program called AACA, Adaptative, Adaptative Actions for a Changing Arctic, where they're trying to understand what adaptation actions have them implemented, trying to document those, trying to understand it so they can be shared with other residents throughout the Arctic so that the, to make the whole population more flexible in, in dealing with the challenges they're currently facing. So there's a huge amount of work going into adaptation at this point. Well, thank you, Larry. I'd like to thank all the panelists uh, for their presentations and sharing some of their knowledge and understanding, their experience and expertise with you. I think they've shown you, given you some flavor for how interesting it is to be an Arctic researcher uh, at the moment with these rapid changes we're seeing and the widespread consequences of those changes. They don't stay in the Arctic. They affect much of the rest of the planet in one way or another. So it's an interesting time not only to be an Arctic scientist, but also um, to be a witness to these changes and the effects they have on all of us. Um, I'm sure if you have further questions, the panel, panelists would be happy to talk to you, exchange business cards or whatever, but we must move on uh, to the rest of our program. Thank you again, everyone.